Welcome to episode 78 of the Wulok podcast. I'm Marshalink Squaley coming to you from Rabat. And with me today is Ursula Lindsay in Amman. And today we're going to be talking about the best of 2021, the best books we read, each of us in five different categories. And they may not be the most standard categories that you're accustomed to, uh, but each of us have chose five separate categories of the best books that we read this year. And hello, Ursula. Hi. Yeah, definitely. I think our end of year list is idiosyncratic. I think on purpose, we're not trying to be um, either scientific or super comprehensive. We're just talking about some, some of our favorite books, knowing that there's lots of other ones out there that, uh, that haven't, that haven't, that we either haven't even read or that certainly haven't made this, this list. Um, but we're and trying to God, do really. I mean, there are so many lists out this time of year that are the same uh, 20 big books of the year that you see over and over again. And I really appreciate the smaller and more idiosyncratic lists that you can find. These aren't necessarily the best books of the year, you know, uh, parentheses, trademark. Uh, but there are some, you know, fun books that we would like to highlight for various reasons. Yeah, no, and actually I think on mine, they are all books I really, really like. Like, Yeah, no, these are, I, I'm not recommending books that I didn't like, but. <laughs> you know, not just that have a value for some particular reason, but all, one of my, one of my criteria was also that like, I want to own them. I would recommend them. The thing is that you don't recommend every book to every person. That's the th weird thing about the end of the year yes, list. Is like, yes, yes. You're basically trying to find, they, they're making these lists of books as if everybody would like this one. And you know, in your life, when you're out like buying books or recommending books or lending books to people, that's not how it works. Like it's very specific to the particular person that you have in mind. Um there Absolutely. No and I see over and over again the, this, the same list with uh, Sally Rooney and uh, Kazuo Shiguro's Claire and the Sun and, you know, this sort of like... Patricia Lockwood. <laughs> I've read quite a few of these actually. Um, but so that's the other thing is they're actually books that you've usually, if you're a reader, already read quite a few of because they've already been in the news a lot. Um, so it's not necessarily much of a discovery. Right. Um, and I'm not, so, I don't have listed the book that I gave. I, so there's a, a list I really did like on Middle East Eye of best books of the year, where they just asked each of a number of their contributors to suggest one book of the year. And that I suggested Book of Travels by Hannah Diab that we very recently talked about. And I don't need to list again, but I did really enjoy that book this year. Right. Well, we did that in the last episode, so you can't talk about it again. <laughs> right. All right. No, I won't. So let's start. Let's start. Let's get, let's, let's talk okay. about the first right. book on your list. All right. Sure. Okay. So in the category of drum roll, <laughs> um, best literary cookbook for children. Uh, it is, it goes to doo -doo -doo, Arab Fairy Tale Feasts by Karim Madrawi, illustrated by Nahid Kazami. And why do I like this book so much? And this was actually sort of the most fun book that I reviewed this year. Um, 
in part because I co-reviewed it with my 10-year-old who actually, uh, the publication suggested that he get a cut of the of my money, which I did duly give it to him. But so it it's it's a literary cookbook and that um, it's called Arab Fairy Tale Feasts. And there is a, a fairy tale and they're sort of um, updated fairy tales uh, th- that come from, you know, s- they're, they're not um, fairy tales taken from the tradition rather that, you know, it's a Goha story, but it's written originally by Kirim el who is also himself a children's book writer. Um, so there, it's sort of a mix of, of traditional and contemporary. Uh, and, and then each one of those is paired with a recipe. And they are, they are, they're basic recipes, but they have, um, it's, it's, I think it was a pretty complex thing that he pulled off because, and with two Palestinian restaurateurs who worked with him on the recipes, um, because they're sort of, they're, they don't take too much time, but they're, you know, they're, they're culturally rooted, which is one of the things I really liked about this. So there's a number of things I really liked about this. There aren't middle grade cookbooks, at least that that I've seen. Cookbooks for children mainly are for, for toddlers and they're more like sort of decorating, you know, cookies and pizzas and things. And then cookbooks for teenagers. There's not too many uh, cookbooks for this age. Also, you know, so many recipes float around sort of contextless. This really roots the recipes in a sort of cultural framework, you know, hummus isn't like a thing that you can just like stick in a plastic tub and throw in the supermarket and add whatever shit you want to, to it. Hummus is, you know, here is a thing rooted culturally, not just in one place, you know, uh, he, Kadim talks about, um, in his introduction and in, 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 in talks that he's given about this book, about how fairy tales and food are similar and that they travel. But they don't travel rootlessly, right? So fairy tale mm. moves from one place to another, and then it's recontextualized. It becomes a new part of a place. It becomes rerooted. So it's not he's not saying things need to remain fixed forever. This fairy tale from the 1300s must never change, just like this recipe. But but that things you know travel to a new place and then become rerooted. Another so and then as I was thinking through the process of so. Um, my, my son and I did a lot of the recipes together as well as reading it and talking about it together. And um, I don't have, you know, you know, many people, of course, uh, probably most people in the world live in cultures where they have a, f- a culinary framework, right? They have a way to pass down cooking from one generation to the other. Um, I, I, my mother never, you know, <laughs> I, I don't remember her telling me anything about food. You know, the, our only food traditions were things she hated from her childhood. Um, I don't I don't know that her mother told her anything about food either. Um, so I was thinking of how do I pass down any kind of food knowledge to my kids? And, you know, the framework, because I don't, I don't know, I don't have a, a cultural framework for doing it. Having a cookbook and talking about talking through the cookbook was really, was really wonderful. Um, and, and my 10 year old is now, you know, I, uh, when, when I've used cookbooks, you know, those baby cookbooks, I don't know. I, but my 10 year old is now at an age where we can discuss these various food questions. Um, and, and so I really, I, I, we enjoyed the stories. Nahid's uh, illustrations are fantastic. 
She's um, Iranian, but she said she did a lot of cultural, deep cultural research in order to illustrate this cookbook. Um, and also I loved that the, the cookbook, uh, the recipes themselves don't come with photos. So it's not like I made the baba ganoush wrong because mine is ugly and it doesn't look like the picture. They come with illustrations and illustrations of the different food items that go in it. So, uh, you know, there's just like not this binary of you did, you did the recipe right, did the recipe wrong. Um, and she's got such fun, lovely little Easter egg illustrations everywhere. Um, so that is my favorite literary cookbook for children of 2021 and probably the only one I've ever seen. Cool. Cool. Well, we'll, we'll include a link, of course, to all the books and to your review of this book. That sounds really, really neat. Um, okay. Well, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to be able to pull off the like drum roll and <laughs> trumpet sound that you did. Um, so I'll just go ahead and say, um, so my nominee for uh, best book that I've been waiting f- to see for a long time and that almost didn't ever come into existence um, is Ahmed Bouanani's uh, La Septième Porte, The Seventh Door. Uh, this is published in French and it is a history of cinema in Morocco from 1907 to 1986. And the reason I say that this book um, almost uh, didn't exist or for for decades didn't exist and then was sort of rescued from oblivion is that uh, Ahmed Bouanani is a poet and filmmaker and novelist who was uh, blacklisted and sidelined during his lifetime in Morocco. And uh, because he's a cinematographer, he had worked on this history of cinema in Morocco, uh, which was never published during his lifetime, which he had handwritten um, the book and collected all these images over years. And then uh, there was a terrible fire in the fa- in his uh, family apartment and uh, a lot of his writings and artworks were destroyed. And people thought that this book itself had been, the manuscript had been uh, burnt. And instead what it turned out had happened is his wife had saved uh, everything she could from the fire and his daughter, Tuda Buanani, who is an artist, has spent the last decade um, recovering and archiving his work. And one of the things she meant to do, managed to do is reassemble the manuscript of this book from, I think, three different handwritten um, editions and then years, you know, they were literally going page by page of these soaked, charred uh, pages uh, putting them back together, and finally they found a table of contents years into the project. Um, so this book has um, been published. It's a it's a, it's a beautiful edition. It has a beautiful cover also, which is a still from one of his films. Uh, and uh, and not only was the book sort of rescued from oblivion, but the whole focus of Buanani's work itself is to is to rescue. Moroccan historical memory from the distortions of colonialism and of the authoritarian Moroccan regimes uh, and his work on cinema, uh, it, which he sort of tells the history of cinema also as a as a participant in in almost the first generation of, of filmmakers in Morocco. 
um, he's not, he's, there were, there was, there are some older figures, but he's certainly the, among the first post-colonial filmmakers. Um, so he's a, he's an excellent writer and he's an actual participant in this history. So it's a very interesting, um, book. It's fun to read and it has this project of, you know, saving memory, uh, about cultural production, which is something that gets, you know, cast aside and really not maintained, uh, you know, not just in Morocco, but across, across the Arab region, uh, you know, kind of quite, quite violently discarded. Um, so, so it's a, it's a really, really interesting book. And I'd heard about it, uh, this project years ago, and now it's like, finally, exists and, and you know i had the pleasure of holding the book uh and i think it's a really like a, a great reference um for people who are interested in the modern history of morocco and in like sort of all the issues around producing art and uh documenting history mm. yeah. fantastic that sounds very exciting and uh for Anglophone listeners, we don't know anything about any possible English language translation. Not at the moment. Uh, there's a collection of Buenani's poetry and there's a novel. So there's The Shutters, which is a collection of poetry, and there's a novel called The Hospital, both of which have been quite nicely translated into English. Um, I don't know about plans to translate this book. I mean, it is uh, a quite. Mm, niche topic in a way i mean right. uh so and and this edition is like i said it's very it's almost printed like an art book it's very pretty um and it's done by uh the cult uh gallery in rabat was part of the, was i think the main publisher with maybe some support from from elsewhere but uh i don't know it would be great if eventually it was uh, somehow available in English as well, because like I said, it's rare also to have these kinds of studies um, that are a combination that really look at like the conditions under which art was being produced. Mm. You know, and he starts out like just to give an example, he has a lovely little chapter, which is something I had read excerpted years ago about. Um, this Moroccan filmmaker called, uh, I think, Mohamed Osfour, who was an amateur filmmaker who in who would go out into the like forests outside Casablanca with his friends and film amateur Tarzan-like movies and adventure movies, and who, of course, has never been considered a, uh, you know, worthy of being included in the history of filmography in, you know, because what he produced wasn't artistic and it wasn't, you know, officially funded and it wasn't, I don't think probably preserved anywhere, but Buenani writes this lovely chapter about this man who he met, who he knew, who he spoke to and interviewed and about how this impulse to make his own movies you know, and not just to consume the Hollywood movies that were coming into the or the, and the French films that were coming into the, the, the Salle de Cinema in Casablanca, but that he wanted to go out and say, why not me? Why don't I go make these movies? 
And he mm-hmm. went to considerable expense and difficulty with no like technical know-how um, and, and got all these people to participate in these, in these films he would make. Uh, it's, it's a lovely story about the, you know, that he says is part of the history of cinema in Morocco. And so I think also his point of view is to be, is to always investigate this question of, you know, who is cinema being made for and by who and with what purpose, you know? So, um, it's a very, you know, uh, interesting analysis. It's not like a dry academic book. Um, and, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of an open book. It it looks at, it looks at cinema from all the angles. Excellent. Well, I, I'm sure I would love to pick up a copy. They must have them nearby me somewhere. You're in a better position than most (laughs) to get one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like you're in the same city where it's been published. So it's doable. Unfortunately, I'm not sure how easy it will be to find online, but uh, I think probably it can actually be ordered uh, online. Excellent. All right. So my second category is, and I will do the drum roll, um, best collection of poetry by a poet previously unknown to me. Okay. And the winner of this category is... Except for this unseen thread by Raad Abdul Qadir, translated by Mona Karim. And um, for me, uh, poetry collections are a very personal thing. Uh, you, you know, I can I see a poetry collection that someone says, oh, this is the best of the year. And I read it and I don't feel, I can, you know, sort of perceive what, what they say is great about it, but I don't feel it's sort of a resonant emotional connection to it. But when I do feel um, an emotional connection to a collection of poetry, it's, you know, sort of, I don't know, um, in some ways, you know, it's one of those connections that's beyond language that uh, that you, you struggle to explain, like, why, why are you more attracted to this person than that person? Or why, why does this, why do you want to be friends with this person and not that person? Um, you know, it could be that I'm just less good at at articulating what I like about poetry. But, um, but you know, when I have a poetry collection that I really enjoy, I like to carry it around with me and keep reading from it. And this is one of those collections. So Ra'ad Abdul Qadir is a, was a 70s generation poet in Iraq, although then apparently he sort of re-emerged in the 90s um, to publish again. Um, Mona Karim in her introduction calls him underrated and forgotten. Um, and she quotes him as saying, so I'm going to read a couple of his poems, although she quotes him as saying that he's not a poem poet, but a book poet. Um, so I, I do think that it's really worth worthwhile immersing yourself not in a single poem from the collection, but in the whole vision of the collection. And I think um, Mona really describes it really well in, in the introduction in where she says some of Raid's poems feel like screenshots from horror movies in which objects move and humans turn out to be ghosts. So this mm. is what I really loved about this collection is that the objects are infused with so much sort of um, the objects of daily life are infused with so much life and emotion. And yes, the, the human beings kind of, yes, flip in the background. Um, but it is the the sentient 
things of our world that are the focus. So here is a poem called Windows. Windows, they can do anything, look in or out. They can notice the slightest breeze, stand still in their place, indifferent to what's happening, silent, staring, content, happy with their love stories, with the light cutting through their bodies. They enjoy this loneliness of high windows. And a lot of the poems are short and you just, um, over the course of them, become friends with or get to feel sympathy with uh, an object or, or a couple of objects. You know, I really, in this one, you know, uh, what struck me really was the light cutting through their bodies. Um, so they're like uh, one or two arresting images in addition to this, just this some um, sympathy for the things of daily life. Uh, you know, I guess from Mona's introduction that there were, you know, so many poets writing these big mythologizing poems of, of abstract, um, uh, you know, historical entireties of Iraq. And, and these poems are not just the poems of daily life, life, but the poems of the stuff of daily life, you know, the, the coffee mug and the, and the window and, and um, the mirror. Hmm. And this one, empty house. The mirror stayed calm and quiet as they carried her to the Friday market. She did not object. When they wanted to sell her, she was displayed and the house was emptied of her. Yesterday, they buried a bird in the garden, and a cage became empty. Today, they carry the empty cage with the quiet mirror to the Friday market. The house is emptied of them. The house has become empty, empty completely. For so long, they lived together, the empty cage and the mirror. And there's almost the kind of this fairy tale repetition in the poems sometimes. Um, and yeah, so the even the bird, they buried the bird in the garden. By the time we meet the bird, the bird is already dead. And who buried them? I don't know. We don't even see them. But what's important here is the mirror and the empty cage. Um, and I don't know. I uh, I, I can't. Uh, yeah, they can't used articulate. to be. They, I mean, I'm an I'm an probably, you know, overly empathetic person, but like that final line of that poem by then you're like oh they used to be friends they lived together in the house <laughs> you know that's so sad like <laughs> I, I mean that's also how we work that's how human imagination works you we can invest we can and do invest everything with 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 our own sentience and emotions um right well but maybe the empty cage and the mirror really were sentient. Come on, Ursula. But I, I just imagine also this poet, Rahad Abdul Qadr, is this incredibly, you know, a man who is looking around his house and infusing and investing and animating everything in his world. These mm. very sort of thin, simple objects with, with life and feeling. Well, that actually connects slightly to the... Um, to the book I was going to mention next, I'm going to nominate right. next, and, and I'll ex, I'll explain in a second. So, I'm going to nominate in the category of best book that totally lived up to all the hype. 
um, because I have been hearing about this book for a very long time and almost was quite worried that I would be disappointed. This is Haytham El-Wardani's The Book of Sleep. Uh, and it was translated uh, by Robin Mojer this year into English. Uh, but it came out several years ago in Arabic. And I feel like everybody I know read it and kind of raved about it. And it's uh, a collection of uh, short essays that deal in some way or another with sleep. Um, and the point where I felt there was some resonance with the poetry you're just reading is that Alwardani also describes in some of the essays, because he comes at sleep from like every conceivable angle, but one of them he describes, you know, the world when it's asleep mm. and full of people and objects that are all kind of the same because when we're asleep and when the world is asleep we're all kind of in the same state and so that then there, there's this almost like brotherhood or sisterhood between us and between objects and between plants and between animals because we are all in this strange state of sleep mm. so this kind of collective unconsciousness as a very particular state of equality kind of with everything or connectedness with everything even as we're all unconscious I think he describes very, very beautifully. Um, and he comes at, I mean, he really comes at sleep from like every, you know, he talks about insomnia, he talks about staying up, he talks about waking up, he talks about dreams, he talks about being visited by the dead in your dreams. Um, you know, the, of course, the proximity of sleep to death, uh, the question of memory, the question of you know, remaking yourself every day. Uh, but it's so brilliantly done, I have to say. Uh, I started out and I was just really, really captivated by it, like really captured, um, really moved. I think also there's a subtext to the book that is very much about the aftermath of the Arab Spring in Egypt. Uh, so without referencing it very much explicitly at all, there's this question of, is a revolution comparable to dreaming? Is a revolution comparable to waking up? You know, uh, what do you do with the failure and utter disappointment of a revolution? How do you recover, um, you know, the same way from, from waking up from that or from, from something that you have to leave behind from this small death, from forgetting, from people dying? I mean, there's just so much, such depth of emotion and meaning in the book. Uh, but then, you know, something that we all experience every single day of our lives to have that sort of like brought fresh before your eyes. I was very impressed. Um, and I, you know, it's like thing you're underlining all the time and folding down uh, pages. And uh, I have one thing I'd like to read and it's hard to choose because there's so many that are great. But this mm. is one of my favorites. And every section is about, you know, a page or two. So this one is called <clears throat> The Squatting Beast. You will wake. It may take one year or 1,000, but you will wake in the end. The last thing you remember, scenes from your life all fluttering down at your feet. The cracks began as fine hairline fractures invisible to the naked eye, then widen into fissures, then to a run of ruptures and sunderings, 
until your head collides with a great ball and you are snatched away. How are you saved? And where has your life gone? Look, look, you are not saved. You have been spat out from your life and reborn with the next morning. A part of you is forever dead, claimed by the catastrophe along with everything else. When you open your eyes, you will find that vanished part sitting upright like a dog and looking at you. Every street you walk down, you will come across it, sitting upright at a corner and washing its face with spit-damp paws, waiting for you to pass so it can look at you. You will register the beast's presence in alarm. You will long to approach it and pat it, but your guilt at being the only survivor will overwhelm you. You will turn away. Then you will notice that it does nothing but sit and stare. It is waiting for you to return its gaze. One day, you summon up your courage and look. It shrinks. You will continue to walk through the streets where you encounter the beast of the past. It will continue to shrink with every glance until only its gaze remains. You will name these streets your new life. Your new life which grows and flourishes beneath the gaze of your past. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't know, I, not to put too much pressure on Haizim al but he is not, he has yet to disappoint in anything. <laughs> I mean, that's really, uh, I, it gives me shivers. There's, there's so much, the writing is beautiful and like deep and, um, so yeah, and that is out from, um, Siegel Press, which published quite a few books that I really liked this year. And, um, which I think may be my nominee for like their Arab list for like best, yes, best yes. publishing list. Like I really have just loved their books, loved the covers, loved the choices, the editorial choices, like been really, really impressed there too. Right. So if we are on the fly adding a new category, yes, <laughs> best publishing list of 2021, right. Seagull Books. Well, we Yay. can do whatever we want. This is, this, is, this, is a, <laughs> this is a wild list. We can do whatever we want. Okay. So you're up. All right. All right. My next book also takes place in Egypt during a pivotal moment, although it is 1200 to 1202. And this the category is best book about cannibalism. And I'm not sure I read a lot in this category this year, but stiff competition, uh, <laughs> stiff competition, drum roll. So best book about cannibalism is Physician on the Nile, a description of Egypt and journal of the famine years by Abdelatif al-Baghdadi edited and translated by Tim McIntosh Smith. And unfortunately, Abir Dedi is not here to accept today, to accept his award since he's no longer with us. But so the first, this first section of this book is this. So he's, uh, you know, um, a foreigner in Egypt and he's writing this um, as a report for the Abbasid Caliph, uh, Caliph in, in Iraq um, and the first part is this beautiful descriptive geography of Egypt um, from somebody who clearly both loved the country and, you know, is doing his job in, in describing the different flora, fauna, etc. And then suddenly you're like turned on your head as in the second and third parts are the events of 1200 
1202, which was apparently a great famine, and uh, during which um, not only did people eat each other, uh, but some of them apparently, you know, created social practices around it and um, uh, came to like the taste of eating other people. Um, so, you know, there's all these horrifying and, and you know, bizarre moments that, uh, again, like with Book of Travel, some of them I read aloud, although not to my children. Um, you know, like a, a guy who calls a doctor, not because it turns out he's sick, but he tries to subdue the doctor so that he can, you know, kill, cook, and eat him. And that's yeah, Right. Um, and... You know, some of the, the the sections are so grim and terrible. Of course, women selling themselves for tiny amounts of food and entire villages that died so quickly. As he says, there's nobody to loot or make off with the furniture. You just walk through and it's an empty area. So I, I, I found it in the end difficult to imagine a famine coming on that quickly. But I guess, you know, obviously they did not have canned food or you know, large stores or Does he say or, what the cause of the famine was? Um, I mean, it was just like, uh, there was no big cause that, I mean, nothing that I remember, you know, like bad crops and suddenly there we are um, with an increasingly worsening, you know, people are fleeing in all directions. And, but then also so many people eating each other. I wanted, okay, I want to read one, one, one is, one was, you know, the doctor I think struck me the most, but this one, this one from, from part two, another extraordinary occurrence of this sort involved one of the army wives, a woman of property who led a comfortable life. She was pregnant. Her husband was away on service. Next to her lived some vagrants. One day she caught the smell of stew coming from their direction and as pregnant women are wont to do asked them for some. Finding it delicious, she asked for more. They told her that there was none left, so she asked for the recipe, whereupon they confided to her that the meat was human flesh. At this, she cajoled them into catching children for her, for which she rewarded them generously. This happened many times. She became addicted and fell under the sway of her bestial nature. At this point, her maidservants, in dread of her, informed on their mistress. As a result, her house was raided and such quantities of flesh and bones were discovered as to corroborate the accusation. The woman was imprisoned and kept in irons, uh, though she was granted a stay of execution, both out of respect to her husband and to preserve the child in her womb. So most of the stories. But do you believe this, or do you think that this is all kind of like? No, definitely. Sweeney, twelfth century Sweeney Todd. (laughs) Okay, so so. Definitely, the grim ones uh, are, are very believable. Um, the ones where desperate people do eat. But then there seem to be um, people who make dinner parties and really eat eat each other. Whether this but, particular woman's story is true or not, he did not seem to see it for himself. But in other places, he, uh, I, I do believe that he witnessed... Um, cannibalism bodies floating down people digging up corpses in order to uh eat them because they you know the famine was so bad yeah not like a christmas book i would say (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I would not, <laughs> would not recommend this as a gift book unless, you know, for a very specific Someone with a very macabre (laughs) set of interests and humor and sensibility. Yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. Um, Okay. Well, I am going to nominate now in the category of um, best book to give to someone as a Christmas present. I think. All right. Um, And uh, this is the... um, New annotated edition translated by Yasmin Seal of the Thousand and One Nights, or as they've chosen to call them, still the Arabian Nights. Um, and uh, we had Yasmin on uh, last year as she's been working on this translation and continues to work on this translation because I believe there is a um, there's there are further there's a there's a further complete edition right of the nights right, yeah there should be. That she's working on um and she's obviously this incredibly talented uh creative translator who's also done some lovely projects around her translation of the nights including um artworks using pages of an old edition of the night that she's collaging and covering up and um so i feel very confident i haven't got i so i will actually say this i've ordered this book because i don't think he's going to listen to the episode before Christmas for my husband, who's a knight's head. Oh, okay. Who's <laughs> a thousand and one knight's head, who already has multiple editions of it and loves it. And um, I feel very confident that Yasmin's translation is going to be beautiful. And also this edition includes like extra materials and illustrations. And um, I think uh, works that are inspired by the knights. Um, so it looks like it would be um, like right up, right up, right up the alley of anybody who's already interested in the Thousand O Nights, but also just a beautiful gift because those stories are just so lovely to read, whether you've read them before or not. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really this kind of text where like, there seem to be so many versions of it. One can just kind of keep on, uh, drinking from this well and, mm. and, and finding new ways to, to approach this text. Although as I understand, uh, Yasmin herself would have preferred that the title be the thousand and one nights and Norton insisted on calling it the Arabian nights. And, um, I think most of us would kind of are a little bit surprised by that decision to stay with that title, which does not reflect the original Arabic title and seems less cool to me too. Like, Right. Well, I asked, I, we asked, um, uh, Paolo Lemos Horta about it, the, who, who edited this collection that she translated. And yes, it was also his preference to use a thousand and one nights. Um, but apparently they, you know, they generally use whatever is the most culturally resonant. And he sort of reconciled himself to it because there are these stories, the, um, the Antoine Golan stories, which came into English as the, you know, Arabian Nights that were not from the Thousand and One Nights manuscript. Right. I mean, in a way, it's it's a collection of stories that resists any attempt to sort of try to establish what is or isn't authentic about it, because it has been like rewritten and retranslated and recoalesced and traveled and in, in, so, in so many ways that it doesn't make a lot of sense to try and um, sort of... It, assume that there is one definitive version of it 
which is one of the things right. that's so charming about it. So anyway, I think it would make a, that, that, that is a book that would make a great Christmas present for, for many, for many people, young and old and interested or not, or familiar or not already. Um, it looks really lovely. Excellent. So then I will, um, move into my next category, which is, uh, I'm going to fold actually two categories together into one best gift book under $20, uh, which is, uh, Ralph Cormack's Midnight in Cairo. And I've been thinking about this book a lot, uh, because I'm currently reading this historical police procedural set in Alexandria in uh, the 1930s uh, called Orphans of Alexandria by Zineb Zaza. And, and it's, it's, it's set in two levels. So there's the, um, the wealthy, um, also sort of glamorous mix of foreigners and Egyptians and foreigners from all over mixed with Egyptians. And then also there are the, the titular uh, orphans and, you know, the, the crime begins with um, a, a murder of a wealthy foreigner. The real crimes are uh, the sort of corruption and abuse of, of young women orphans in, in Alexandria. But it is it is set in, in this um, it, 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 in a in a way that resonated so much with some of the things that I loved about Midnight in Cairo, the wonderful historical portraits that he gives of particularly of, of women in, in this period. And the, not just the, like the, you know, the triumphs of their lives, like the excitements of, but also the incredible difficulties of their lives and the, the ways in which things fell apart. Um, not for everyone, but for, for seemingly for, for most. Um, we should say for those who haven't listened to our episode about this, that these are this is a book about female performers, mostly yeah. singers uh, in 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 the cabarets and theaters and movie how eventually movies and on the radio in in Egypt. Right, and while you know um, Evan in in this novel is a is a ballerina, and some of the women are sort of more I don't know. Um, women of the night it <laughs> i think it overlaps with with it, the sorts of portraits and uh, that Ralph Raphael Cormac uh, has in Midnight in Cairo which this is subtitled The Divas of Egypt's Roaring 20s but it does move on into the 30s and also into the 40s and giving up sort of a broad um portrait of women's lives in this period of a particular you know particular women's lives. I thought he did such a nice job of striking that balance between telling their lives in a way where you had uh, respect for everything that they managed to accomplish. Like it, it gives them their due, but it doesn't paper over the ways in which um, they still were disadvantaged. Like it doesn't make it a sort of facile story of female empowerment. Like they, they were, mm. Right. You see how resourceful and how original and how ambitious they were, but at the same time, the con- like the ways in which they were also constrained, and the ways in which they were there were men around them trying to control them, um, and you know everything that they had to sort of contend with is also there in the story. So, and, and so you are com- you're you're talking about also 
this book and then you're reading a detective novel that's set in Alexandria in the same time period, more or less? Yes, yes, by uh, Zainab Zaza. And it's the first in a a trilogy of um, uh, police procedure, you know, historical murder mysteries with a detective named Ibrahim, who is, you know, he starts out in, in this one, searching for the, assigned to search for the murder of this wealthy Hungarian foreigner named Zabo, who we don't, well, I, at this point in the novel, I'm pretty sure I know where his money comes from, but um, but uncovers all sorts. It, it's not that crime. That's not the crime that sort of motivates you to keep reading. And I, I'm really enjoying it. It was originally put out in 2013 from Merit, and then it was, but it's been recently reissued. And also it was recently translated to French. Cool. So you managed to get two books into your nomination. You sorry. You, squeezed, you, squeezed. <laughs> you, you did. Don't care. You cheated by this uh, best publishing list. So you know. I don't mind. I don't mind. I'm just. I'm just not surprised at all that you that you're trying to squeeze more in. <laughs> I. Um, though both of those sound cool. Obviously, I kind of think both Cairo and Alexandria from the 20s to today have a lot of noir potential as cities. Mm, mm, Um, Yes. uh, All right, your turn. Okay, so um, in the category of best book that I am very, very slowly reading in Arabic, um, but intend to finish, and that is one of the few books in Arabic that I read every year, uh, is uh, the prison memoir of uh, our friend, the author Ahmed Naji. Um, and and actually, I don't know how to translate the title. Uh, a rot of evidence. Uh, a rot of evidence. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so it's it's Harz uh, Mukamkam, I believe, is how you pronounce it. And um, we had uh, Ahmed on uh, also. Uh, earlier this year, and uh, there is an excerpt from this book. It was published in English in The Believer, and um, uh, that's partly what made me want to read it. Uh, uh, um, and I've, I think it's so. You know, Ahmed Neji was imprisoned um, because of his writing, because of a court case that had to do with obscenity in a book that he'd written, alleged obscenity. And this is his account of being in prison. And I think um, one of the things that's most interesting about it is that it is a purposely, extremely anti-romantic prison memoir. So the prison Mm -hmm. memoir is like a genre that's, you know, of course, unfortunately, very common. uh, And some of them, you know, very, very heartbreaking. And, but a lot of them, you know, stories of, you know, survival and resilience and this terrible suffering, also indictments of the regime, you know, they tend to be uh, serious um, stories. Or, you know, the last one that I read was Nawal Sadawi's prison memoir, which is very much a story about, you know, sort of her, her resilience in the face of the regime. Mm. Um, Ahmed Neji, I think very purposely, you know, focuses on everything that's absurd, that's grotesque, um, that's embarrassing. Like it, it, it includes, you know, 
like physical details and graphic details about the prison experience, but also just uh, about the day to day. You know, there's nothing grand about his suffering, but it is, of course, suffering. It is an awful experience. Um, but he very, I think he sort of writes against the grain of a lot of prison memoir. And, you know, he has this very interesting focus specifically on what it's like to read and to write in prison. So eventually he talks about, you know, the prison library and the books that circulate and the other inmates and what they're reading and what it's like for him to be in prison for his writing when he never intended, you know, he didn't write thinking that this could get him sent to prison. Um, and and then what what it's like to to write about it afterwards. Um, so I think, you know, it has a lot of honesty, um, and, and some humor and it's a very like original and personal, um, and ultimately of course, moving account, uh, of, of being in prison and, and trying to kind of like scrape away, I think any sentimentality from from mm. it. Um, which is not to say that there aren't other excellent unsentimental prison memoirs, but um there 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 are a lot um that he's I think sort of purposely um critiquing. Right. Or or although I would say against. that there right. I would say that I have not read very many, if any, funny, I mean mem- right. prison memoirs where there's significant humor in it. Right, right. I mean, I think, like, he kind of had me at the very, very beginning, he describes just the utter kitschiness of the decor of the prison in the first couple of pages. (laughs) And then he says something like, you know, I felt like, oh, no, this was going to be my own personal hell. Like, the design of the prison was (laughs) awful to me. Because it has, like, I think, you know, it has this kind of, like, um, sort of 1970s nature posters, like, you know, and, and paintings of like nature scenes and stuff. It's actually part of a sort of beautification of the prison project. Um, of course he finds this, you know, uh, deeply disturbing. Um, and, and I also, yeah. So, so he has a sensibility where he is looking for what's darkly funny about the situation and he's also looking at himself with with a lot of sense there's not a lot of people who can look at themselves in that situation with a sense of Mm. humor right Uh, so I think it's um yeah I'm I'm really looking forward to continue and everybody else who's read it has told me it's great and I can already tell from the from the beginning that I'm going to really enjoy it excellent all right. So the next category is best introduction to a novel. Hmm. And the winner is Belka uh, Sharara for her introduction to the reissue of her late sister Hayat Sharara's When Darkness Falls. So um, I worked with Hin Said in, in translating this introduction. Um, because Hind wanted to do this uh, diverse et al. series for, for Arab Lit to kind of showcase 
um, all kinds of uh, literature from from different communities in in Iraq. And this particular this just just squeezed my heart and really has not let go. I've n- not just read it, but reread it several times and republished it uh, on the website, sort of insisting I want everyone else to read it too. Um, the, the novel itself has not been uh, translated. And, I, and in fact, I don't have the novel. Um, but When Darkness Falls is also a beautiful um, a way of characterizing Bilqis Sharara's introduction. So it's Bilqis is, a, is um, Hayat's sister, and uh, the novel is published in 1999, two years after Hayat's suicide. And the introduction gives this just beautiful portrait of her sister. Again, not um, not sad or maudlin, but. It begins with sort of the vibrant poetry evenings from their childhood in Berdet and, and how engaged her sister was in those with these major figures of the time, Badr Shikr Sayyab, Lamia Basamara, Nazik al Malaika, and, and, and how, you know, her initial short stories and translations were well received, but the sort of intense narrowing of her life, both as as a, a writer who wanted to be independent as, and as a woman, her inability to publish, to get permission to leave Iraq without a guardian, uh, to get permission to retire from her job. She was, you know, basically told to beg for it and she just wouldn't. And until her life has, or enough darkness has fallen or, or her life has narrowed to, to the point which she decides, she and her daughter together, um, decide to end their lives uh, you know and it reminded me in some ways I, I guess of Iman Marcel's um, book in the footsteps of Annette Zayet it's you, you know um, recovering this woman's life this woman who you know great talent and promise I, I believe um, who you know just every and and who who you know was born into a family that cherished her and um, uh, into a, a milieu that even that that was literary, but whose life was just smushed to the point where she she couldn't see an exit. Um, and I just found this introduction by Bilqis, her sister, tremendously moving. But so the book itself is not available in English. No. The book itself is not available in English, although I think um, I did hear that somebody is working on translating it. Somebody in the family, I think. But the introduction is available on the Arab Lit site? Yes, it is. Okay, so we'll, we'll link to that. And do you know what the... So she wrote more than one novel? Uh, this novel, and then, but then she wrote a bunch of short story collections. She was also a very um, active translator, and she wrote a lot of poetry as well. But I think this was, yeah, this was her novel. Huh. Um, I'll, I, I, I want to read that. I, ha- I hadn't seen it. And you're right that it's very reminiscent. I mean, there seem to be parallels to the story of Anayette Zayet, another young writer who killed herself and the 60s and who it seems to have been a confluence of 
you know, personal and societal factors that led her to feel like she couldn't live the life she wanted. Right, um, exactly. Huh. Yeah, I'll 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 check it out. Um It's funny because I think that there's a lot of stories like that that you could unearth a lot of stories like that whether they end in suicide or not about Arab women writers. Hopefully not of this generation, but certainly of the previous generation. Right. Sonia Saleh comes to mind. Um, I mean, Syrian I had poet. this conversation, you know, Latifa Zayed, who like quit writing for like over a decade because she got into a marriage with a right wing man who basically and basically gave up writing. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's just a very famous case, you know, a major Egyptian feminist writer who gave up her activism, gave up her writing, and then came back to it. But once I think the marriage was over, right? Um, there's, um, there's a, I think there's quite a few of, of stories like that. Oh, um, okay. Well, so do I have, I have one more, right? You do have one more. You are the last, right. you are the wrap up. <laughs> well, so this is a book I've talked about before, but uh, I'm going to talk about it again. And we didn't focus on it that much. This is uh, in the category of, I think, best book dealing with the Syrian refugee crisis that I have read is uh, Rabih Alamedin's The Wrong End of the Telescope. And I would say, because I think that's maybe slightly also a reductive category to put the book in, it's just a, a good book, period, um, because I have a lot of issues with this category of refugee lit, um, which I've actually been delving into recently. And um, so, but anyway, his, his, this book is set on a Greek island, and it tells the stories both of Syrian refugees and of people who have gone to the island to volunteer and to meet and to help Syrian refugees. Um, and, uh, it's done in this episodic, uh, kind of digressive way. And again, it, it, it has a, a lot of humor, which is somewhat surprising, I think, given the topic and, um, which is something that I find, uh, really impressive and, um, and, and actually makes then, of course, the, the, what, what is the, of course, complete tragedy and unfairness and like infuriating uh, cruelty of some of these people's situation stand out. But which, of course, you know, emphasizes the sort of basic fact that, you know, everyone who, who not everyone, not every refugee story is a story of like unrelenting darkness, you know, and, and, and of course there's like every gradation on every form of human experience involved there. And I also appreciated that it sort of focused on the people who go there to help um, because I find that side of the story also interesting. And it kind of then puts the spotlight back on, it's not just telling the stories of refugees. It's saying like, what are we doing? You know, we writ very large. What What's the rest of the world doing? What kind of approaches are there? Is it, does it do anything? What's useful you know, what kind of, what kind of help can you offer? And also, does it, is it helpful to write about these things at all? Like what can writing do? What kind of storytelling do? What, you know, what does it accomplish? Uh, what's the point? And, and, and kind of puts, 
the focus of the story is as much on like what's everybody else doing as it is on the refugees themselves, mm -hmm. as opposed to them having to carry it all. Like this is a story about their suffering. You know what I mean? Where, Cause I right. feel like the refugee story is a story about the whole world. Like what is the world doing about this? Not, not just, you know, what have these people been through? Um, and, uh, Yeah, I just really, um, it had that quality of a book where like I, I really wanted to keep on reading it. I was like a real kind of, you never knew what was going to come next. Uh, it has all these kind of small chapters that are taking off in different directions, following different narrative trends. I mean, threads, you know, following oh, sort of one anecdote down one way and then another anecdote down another, but it also all kind of comes together. There is an underlying sort of cumulative uh, meaning uh, and import to it that, that, I, that I liked. Um, so I think he's done something like quite original and, uh, and, and has pulled it off uh, in terms of telling this story. I've talked about it with like multiple people who have worked directly themselves on the Syrian refugee crisis. And, and I've said, I'd like you to read this book and tell me what you think. You know, people who were on the Greek islands themselves, people who are like the characters in the book. Um, so I'm curious what what kind of reactions they have uh, to the to the story. But I think it's like um, a creative way of approaching the topic. And he like weaves in Greek myths, and he you know he weaves in he gives himself a lot of license to kind of riff on the whole situation. Right. You Which know? I think is necessary. It, you know, you can't be too, too scared to, to jump in. Right. If you're going to tell the story at all, then, then you need to feel comfortable enough kind of, yes, you know, don't, 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 uh, don't sort of keep it at a respectful distance. Um, you might as well go in and inhabit these characters and, 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 and feel free and feel free to show people on all sides of it, you know, being sympathetic and not, uh, mm -hmm. being, being fallible and not, you know, like, uh, what I found, I found the fact that there was, there was like tenderness in it. There was kindness There was like people being good to each other as well, of course, is all the like callousness. And then, but also people being very imperfect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, and uh, Rabbi has, I, I haven't read this book, but his, The Angel of History, which is set around the AIDS, um, I don't know, do we say AIDS crisis? I don't know. But it also is so wonderfully multi-layered. He's got so many different characters and stories going on at the same time. Uh, yeah, mythology and, and, and folktale, and then somehow they all come together. Right. And in this book, he also gives himself license to approach this, the, 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 the theme of transness because he has a character who's a trans woman, like the main character, the narrator. And he mm. does this kind of very interesting, it, I don't know if, if describing it does it, will do it justice because it really is kind of a book that needs to be experienced, but he does this kind of interesting thing where without being too direct or heavy handed about it or whatever, I feel like he explores the idea of transitioning in the broadest possible sense. Like 
of becoming someone else, of leaving parts of yourself behind, of Mm. conforming or not to how people expect you to be. And, and that this is also part of the refugee experience. And of course, it's also part of like the human experience, um, remaking yourself either out of necessity, either, or sometimes being forced to, or actually out of choice to, to be someone that you want to be, to be someone new that you want to be. So it's, I thought it was really interesting. Excellent. Well, I think that gives us um, the 10 winning categories plus some additional ones snuck in along the way. Uh, and you know <laughs> what? People should, people should feel free to uh, nominate their own books in their own made-up categories if they want to tweet that at us. Yes, on, that, at that would Bullock be great. Books. Yes, yeah. I would love to hear what other people's best book of the year was in, in a specific category. Yeah, no, you have, to, you, have to, you have to come up with the book and the category. Right, that, exactly. That, Although deal. if somebody yeah, else like wants to, hear to that too. nominate um, a best book about cannibalism, they can do that too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and um, this is our this is going to be our last uh, episode before the holidays. Uh, we're going to be rerunning some of our favorite episodes over the holidays. And also we've had some wonderful episodes this season. And I, I really urge people to revisit them if you haven't listened to them already. So a lot of the, or a number of the books that we featured today, we dedicated whole episodes to uh, previously. Um, and of course, as usual, if people can um, rate, share, subscribe to the show, uh, that is uh, the, the biggest way you can support us right now. Um, I also, Marcia, did you want to... Um, you said you said you were going to say a few words about uh, Humphrey Davis at the end of this episode. Yeah, uh, um, in uh, in November of this year, there were a number of. Anyway, every year there are of course many authors and translators who leave us, and I just wanted to to talk a moment or have a moment for for Humphrey Davis, um, who was so important to the world of Arabic literature and translation, not just as because he was a, a, an important translator, but because of the community that he created of, uh, as um, Rana Idris and Sam Wilder and many people have put it, of, of you know, um, misfits and oddballs. And Humphrey was always interested in marginal narratives and weird things, um, the Ahmed Ferris-Shidyaq, um, as well as many other books and stories, things that were outside of, uh, of the usual. And as part of that, he sort of, cre- extre- with extreme generosity, um, created this community around him of, um, of those of us who were, you know, weirdos and oddballs, uh, of, of which I was one weird oddball and he 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 passed pretty suddenly uh his the cancer moved rather quickly and and i think many of us didn't have a chance to to say a proper goodbye uh there will be um aac press tells me there will be a memorial uh um in in this spring that will be streamed on zoom and i of course 
uh, encourage people who want to have a place to come and remember him to to join that. We also have a a digital memorial on the website. Yeah, I think the biggest way we can honor his memory um, is by talking about him and talking about his works, which he loved so much. Um, he was a very kind as well as talented person. Um, yeah, he has two, I think, two translations coming out next year. Um, and yes, he was always the guy who would share a taxi with you and help you out and listen to you and help you with any translation mm. or other problem. <laughs> and I will personally, uh, as I know many people will, miss him a lot. Mm. Well, um, after saying goodbye to Humphrey, and we'll now say goodbye to everyone else for now. And um, I guess also wish everyone uh, happy holidays or holiday break and whatever it is that you're celebrating and um, well, hopefully a happy new year. And uh, we'll be back with a new season in January. And in the meantime, we'll have some, some oldies, but goodies uh, running. So goodbye for now. Yes. Goodbye. Look forward to seeing you again in the new year. Yeah. Same here. Bye. <laughs>